This is Sound Lives, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the US and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry. We're listening to Tina Davidson's Delight of Angels, performed by the Cassatt String Quartet from an Albany record CD devoted to the music of Tina Davidson. Tina is my guest on this episode of Sound Lives. We'll talk about her music as well as her just published memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken. If you haven't read the book yet, there are a few spoiler alerts. It was such a joy and a revelation to me, actually, to read this memoir that's just coming out this month that you wrote, Let Your Heart Be Broken. And I really appreciated how candid you were in this book and that I was able to sort of piece together the story of various parts in your life that correspond to pieces of yours that I've known and treasured for decades. So Mm -hmm. it's always a joy to kind of have the backstory Mm -hmm. of things. But it actually got me thinking about how different words are from music. You as a composer are an incredibly expressive and you write music that's very emotive and very direct, but no matter how direct it can music, and in particular instrumental music, is an elusive medium since you can't communicate explicitly the way you can with words. Right. And I think in the beginning of my composing journey as a young person, what I loved about it is I could be anonymous. I could tell my story and nobody would say, oh, is that about your mother? (laughs) Or is that about your trauma? And I loved the anonymity of it. And it reminds me of a quote that the artist's dilemma is to be heard, but not to be found. And I loved that sense of wanting to be heard and accepted by others, but also not wanting to be found. And I think that's a dilemma for everyone as a person as well. It's fascinating, though, because at the same time in your memoir and also in program notes for your pieces, and over the years, you've always said that your process of composing is about discovering yourself. It is about discovering this journey. Maybe you're able to discover yourself in it, but maybe you're also able to (laughs) to hide a little bit. And I think that as I grew, you know, from through my 30s and the 40s, you know, I've been writing for 45 years, I resolved a lot of personal issues and had more courage to come forward and be direct and to say, this is what I'm writing about. I suppose that the memoir is the full circle of that. You know, when you write about yourself, you really make yourself incredibly vulnerable. And hopefully you can do that without making other people vulnerable in your life. And I worked really hard at being honest without calling people names or having judgments about their behavior necessarily. In fact, I sent the book several times to my ex-husband to make sure that it was okay that I was talking about him very referentially, but that he was okay with that. And that's very important to me. And I see in your dedication, he was actually one of the people who you thanked. And I love that you're saying this because I felt the generosity in this book toward everybody, you know, despite 
bad things that happen. I mean, people do bad things to each other. This is humanity, yes. right? But that generosity, bring it back to music, also extends into your music. And it's sort of communicative generosity. This difference between words and music that I keep coming back to because, you know, I've always known of you as a composer and now I'm dealing with you as a writer as well. And I've been thinking about this and, you know, you talked about it in your trips to Sweden early on and not understanding the language and it's sort of being this wash over you. Words mean a lot to somebody, but you have to understand the language in order to get the word. So if you're hearing something in a foreign language, it makes even less sense than hearing music. Because music, at least you get the emotional content. Right. And I think in music, you get the journey, whatever the journey is. And the journey is, to me, is always a story. It's about me traveling and hopefully you listening with me through the journey of the piece. And that wonderful sense that you can't actually touch music, you know, it's so ephemeral. You really reconstruct that journey through memory. As you get to the end of the piece, it doesn't make any sense unless you could remember the beginning. So it's you as an active participant that really creates the piece as a whole. A great example of the narratives that you can hear in Tina Davidson's music is I Hear the Mermaid Singing, performed by violist Kathleen Carroll, cellist Laurie Barnett, and pianist Charles Abramovich on a CRI emergency music disc of Tina Davidson's music. composers actually collaborate with everyone. They collaborate with the music, they collaborate with the performers, as the performers really inhabit your music, and it has to be shaped on their body. And then the audience, you kind of collaborate with them as an extension of receiving it. That to me is just very cool. I really love that process. Part of that, though, with a listener, with an attentive listener, I mean, this gets to this whole notion, is music itself a kind of a language? There have been lots of debates about this. And people used to love to say, oh, music is the universal language. But the problem with that is, depending on who you are and what your background is with music and your experience with music, you're going to hear things in a certain way. If you're trained as... A performer, you're going to hear music in a certain way. If you're a composer, you're going to be analyzing it. And if you grew up in a certain culture that had certain music that's more familiar to you, it's going to create prejudices for you as a listener. You're going to be close to certain things because of what you're used to. I want to believe that music can cut through those things ultimately because it doesn't have the barrier of syntax that a verbal language does. But 
it's not as glib as saying it's necessarily universal. So I wonder in all of that, for your ideal listener, what do you hope for in that listener in terms of understanding? Yeah, I think when you go to a place where you say music is a universal language, you might be putting on a little bit of emperor's clothing. I think in the music field, certainly in the 60s and 70s, there was a sense of the preciousness of music, sort of the elitism of music through the university composer who cares if they listen, Milton Babbitt. And I have always wanted to move away from that elitism because I can only compose what I compose. I can't say this is universal. That's kind of too much. What I believe in is that when I write a piece of music, I try to articulate where I am the best that I can. And what I've noticed is when it's out there, it's not that people get me, but they get themselves. And that's what I love. It's almost as if something about my music or that experience resonates with something in them and they can experience themselves. That's what I'd hope for. That's beautiful. There's a passage in your book that I keep coming back to. I, I read it over and over again. It's probably my favorite passage in the book at this point. It's your journal entry from March 16th, 1989, which is the day that Jennifer Higdon, who was then a student, came over and you had to talk about music and she shared some of her work with you. And you explain the difference between allowing music to flow as opposed to developing musical material through various procedures. It's very, very poignant. I read it, it just sparked so many ideas. In fact, as soon as I read that page, I said, I have to talk to Tina. I have to, we have to do this. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this is the page that sealed the deal. You talked about composers having this assumption that listeners can actually follow developmental procedures in music. Even people who are trained in music, it's a very specific kind of listening. So that was why I wanted to kind of get at this question of what you're expecting from the listener. And I thought it was beautiful that you just said you expect the listener to sort of gain their own story from it, but not necessarily to be like, oh, that's the inversion of that theme. That's the retrograde. Right. And that's why I love sort of the idea of collaborating with the listener. I'm not telling them. I hope that I am eliciting from them their own response. You know, it's interesting because I just was teaching a lesson to a very talented young composer. He wanted to talk about development. And I finally said to him, you know, I, I don't have a pithy statement that's going to make this all right for you. I don't have a how-to. A lot of development to me is that you're creating this scenario that it gets maybe to an energetic high point or there's some tension, but you can't keep on going there. You have to move it. And then it's that wonderful transition to the next place that you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, sure, that's where she got to. You would go, oh, how did she get there? That's exactly right. I don't know how she got there, but that makes sense. So it appeals to your sense of logic and to your balance of ear. And then it's sort of how do you tailor that transition, which is what development is about. How do you move through something? How do you land and also depart at the same time? 
I love sound. I always go back to just loving sound and wanting to know how it operates and how I can move it through these transitions in a meaningful. And also, you know, there is always a kind of a logic, and I'm not saying a mathematical logic, but there is that balance that you're always weighing. A lot of times it just becomes intuitive because you've done it for 40 years. So it starts to be hard to teach because you kind of have to do the work. One of the things that I'm curious about, you talked about how you came to compose music and how you started out as a pianist and didn't compose until you were in college. But I'm curious, even before that, even before those moments, a story that you didn't share that I'd love for you to share here is your experiences as a listener, what you heard, what sounds were around you, what inspired you and what you were hearing when you were listening, how you were processing the music early on, if you can trace those memories. It's hard because of how I grew up and being adopted by my biological mother and living in that kind of sense of not belonging and not knowing that I belonged. I was really in a cloud. It's hard to go back and because I don't think I had a lot of awareness. The murkiness of my childhood made it hard for me to always be present. I do believe that much of my childhood, even though from the outside, I was this very cooperative, funny child, there was a real darkness in me. And I do remember being seriously depressed, although I don't think I you could see it necessarily because I was very committed <laughs> to this outside persona. That being said, I studied piano with a wonderful teacher at the university who gave me totally weird music, like Octavio Pinto, William Schumann, Casales. I mean, yeah, I played a little Bach and Beethoven, but honestly, my ear was really primed in an interesting way. And then when I went as a middle schooler and I walked over to see Merce Cunningham, that's when the lights went on. That's when I realized... There was something in dance and music that was way beyond this sort of classical perception, that it was movement for movement's sake, not movement to be a ballerina. That was like a lightning stroke for me. I just remember waking up at that point. I was maybe 12, 13. In Tina Davidson's It Is My Heart Singing, a piano and a string quartet are seamlessly woven together. In this recording on Albany Records, the Cassatt Quartet is joined by pianist Stephen Maines. There's a passage from even earlier 
where you describe something that I'd love to unpack that I just, I read and I thought, ah, there's an aha moment in here. You sort of had a love-hate relationship with practicing the piano. And you talk about at one point, you know, you took this book to the piano with you and you were reading instead of practicing. And then you couldn't really deliver the piece in your lesson because you were so engrossed in the book. And that was more meaningful to you. Aha, that's so interesting. Because the book was communicating in a way that the music wasn't. And this gets into this whole dichotomy of perception of words and perception of language. And that switch turned when you started composing. But maybe the music on the page of certain composers as this abstracted thing that was presented there as some sort of timeless thing, sort of out of its context of what it was, wasn't communicating. Certainly when I was <laughs> at that age, when I thought that I could multitask <laughs> and read and practice at the same time. You know, I practiced, but it wasn't really until I was in high school. I went to a German high school and hung out with a lot of young German musicians who were very intellectual and very engaged. And that just seemed really interesting to me. And then taking the year off, between high school and college, I went with my family to Israel, and then I was practicing four or five hours a day. And that was where I really started to live inside the music and started to wonder things like, how could Bach have these exquisite, beautiful two measures embedded in this piece? And he was so generous that he said, oh yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to develop that. I'm just going to move on. It was just I just found that amazing. But to live inside the notes at that point was very important. Where I thought you might go with this, because you do go with this in the narrative when you talk about when you finally started writing music, and Lionel Noack assigned you, everybody had to write music. And you're like, oh, I can do that? <laughs> you know, a woman can write music? It's hard to imagine now. The 21st century has been so lousy in so many ways. You know, pandemic, the terrorism, the wars, all of this awful stuff. But one way it's been really good is that finally we're hearing from a much broader range of musical creators. And there now are female role models for young composers who you can look up to and say, oh, I can do that. That's something for me too. But it's hard to believe it's shocking in a way, you know, as, as somebody who lived through the tail end of that period, that there was a time not all that long ago, all these female composers existed, but nobody talked about them. I had never played a woman composer. Nobody said to me, oh, you can't be a composer, you're a woman, but there was no examples of it. So it never kind of occurred to me that I could write music. So that was just sort of astounding. And I held a lot of the sort of European classical music ideas in my head that all great music had already been written. And that was the canon. And I think to some degree, it still is the canon with major orchestras. Not as much, but it's still, you know, when you look at the percentages of classical music compared to contemporary music, you go, hmm, I wonder. I think music is one of those fields that holds that ideal 
more strongly than any other field. Certainly you don't go to bookstores and there are no contemporary novels. You certainly don't go to art museums and not see any contemporary. And you go to dance concerts, they're young and they're interesting. I mean, the audience is really vibrant and they're interested in new work. But I think that unfortunately the music field has developed a story that hasn't embraced new work. Well, for a long time within classical music, there was this idea that the interpretation was what was new. That, yes. oh, there's going to be like a star pianist or a star violinist do a concerto with an orchestra. This is a, a classical music problem. I mean, certainly there are so many other musics happening all around us that stayed current. But curiously, they get into this kind of museum atrophy after a while too the canonization of jazz and what that's represented or you know oldies radio for rock or look at broadway I mean, revivals tend to be more successful than new shows there's a problem that i think maybe attaches to the economics of all of this that music is a lot more expensive to make happen books you have your know, printer cost and whatnot but you know a painting on a wall you know you frame it you hang it up there are expenses there renting the space, but not paying like 80 people or with opera, you know, paying stagehands and all this other stuff. And people are afraid to take chances. I think they are. But again, I think it comes back to this little bit elitist ideal. And I think what I have learned in my life and what I love to do is to sort of say, you want to write music? Yeah, sure. Great, I'll teach you. How old are you? You're in third grade? No problem. We'll make instruments together. We'll use graphic notation. So my feeling is that when we make the art form really accessible to everyone and we say, you can do this, they are going to be more interested listeners because it will be their art form and they identify with it rather than, oh, it's box art form or classical music art form. The curative is to allow composition to be embraced. Yeah, that it's something that anyone can do and should do. And I think part of it is obviously very wonderful music of Bach and Brahms and all of these folks. Love it, love it. But once again, you know, we've sort of disembodied it. We've decontextualized it. We don't play it to know necessarily what Bach thought about this music. We use it as a vehicle for something else. And I think this gets back to this whole question of who's represented. Obviously, there were tons of female composers. There was a contemporary of, of Bach's, Elizabeth Claude Jacquette de la Guerre, who wrote wonderful music in that period. And contemporaneous to Brahms is Louise Ferenc. There's all this wonderful music that we don't get told about. In addition to that music not getting performed and not getting published, now that's starting to change. There also aren't biographies of these composers readily available, and perhaps even more importantly, getting back to your book, autobiographies, because I think there's something about getting inside the mind of a composer, because music is this elusive thing, to understand who that person is and how it ticks, makes it somehow more real for people. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, I can only tell you about my experience. And that's part of the issue. I can only tell you about my experience. I can't tell you how music is written. I can tell you how I've approached it and how I'm thinking about it, but I can't give you big blanket universal statements. 
I do want to say that one of the things that was really wonderful for me, especially as a young composer in Philadelphia, was to be in the company of amazing experimental composers. I always felt like I came out of an American experience of composing, which was Ruggles and Ives and Cowell and Henry Brandt, although he's Canadian. But then I hung out with people like Pauline Oliveras and Terry Riley and Ryshevsky, and those composers were really informative to me. They didn't care about fitting in. They really cared about their personal journey. That was terrific company for me. And I think it helped me really develop you know, this very strong sense of sound and how do I discover it and how do I follow it? In a lot of my pieces, I sort of start with what I call pre-sound, where, you know, it's just the sound of the instrument, the knockings, and then gradually I'll add tones and sometimes I'll try to distort those tones. But I love that kind of place where the birth of sound or the birth of us, and I do think it's relative to how I started to understand myself, that slowly I started putting pieces of myself together so that I could write more music that was integrated this way, as well as vertically, as well as horizontally. I mean, in terms of that seed of how it begins, there's another, that same passage that I keep coming back to, which I think is the big statement for me, that music is like bread. You have that whole sequence. And that you create certain conditions for it. You pick the size of a pan. You have the ingredients that you put into it. But then it's important to just let it rise and not get in the way. And there's an element of intuition there, as well as an element of structure. I mean, you obviously you know choose the ingredients, you choose the pan. And, and if you don't do it a certain way, it's going to be a lousy loaf of bread, right? <laughs> I can go flat. I mean, and that's the risk you take with your work. You don't always write great music. You know, you have flops. You know, I have pieces that I go, oh, boy, I hope they don't see the light of day. <laughs> I don't know why. It just didn't happen. And I tend not to revise a lot of things. You know, if I have a piece that I don't love, I'll just say, okay, next piece. I'll take those problems into consideration and see how I work on those in the next one. And I'm always interested how over the years, my choice of the elements of my composition have slowly changed. I think there's some composers who can write in lots of different styles, and that's not me at all. It's like I have this slow evolution, and I, sometimes I'll shed something that I'm writing and I'll add something else. And I was very rhythmic in my music, and I still am. And I actually write kind of complicated music that doesn't sound complicated at all. Well, I don't want to speak for all performers, but I don't think it is that complicated to play if you sort of throw away the fear of it. And you just say, oh, the downbeat really helps you go into these different kinds of measures. And then I moved into something where I was really more interested in harmonies and how they glow. They're almost like Venetian blinds. You know, you open the blinds and there's all this light and then you close the blinds and there's not much light. And right now I'm interested in tremolos and oscillation of sound. Love to hear some of that work. 
to take it back, one of the things that I find interesting that you definitely have a real affinity for it, this is fascinating to me, that as somebody who grew up with piano and piano being the centerpiece, you are so, so fluid with strings. You write so wonderfully for string quartet. And that's been kind of a hallmark. That's a medium that you've returned to numerous times, beginning with a piece that you wrote for you know, what was and still is in many ways, the most famous string quartet around now, the Kronos Quartet. That sort of began your journey of writing these wonderful string quartets. I wanted to talk a little bit about Cassandra's things because I feel like the myth, right, of Cassandra, this metaphor of this person telling the truth that nobody wants to listen to. And in our day, it's such a poignant metaphor for so much of what's going on now. This whole pandemic where people didn't want to listen to it, and that's why it's still going on. The climate change thing where it was so warm in the afternoon yesterday and last night coming home it was freezing. You know, this shouldn't be these kinds of fluxes, but it's because people aren't listening to the truth. You know, how do you convey that in a piece of music? Right. Boy, writing for the Kronos Quartet, I just have to go back a little bit. I hung out with them a lot. And I realized that I was going to create a piece that kind of had to fit them like a beautiful suit of clothing. And I had to take their personality into account. David Harrington, he's kind of thin and he plays in a more of a dry kind of way. The violist is really lovely. And of course, the cellist is, you know, she's just out there at that point. And so I really had that as a consideration. And, it, and the piece starts with this long cello solo, which kind of is beseeching. And the rest of the quartet is kind of trying to pull her down. Now, I can't say that I was thinking that exactly. It's not like I was trying to paint that picture. But I always, when I write, I hold the words or the title in my head. And I kind of ask the title to inform me as I'm composing. And I really felt this sense of not so much a lone female voice, but the voices that we are that cry out against what is what they're seeing and willing to go that far to put themselves in danger. I think I was carrying that idea as I was writing that piece. Here's an excerpt from Tina Davidson's Cassandra Sings from a CRI disc featuring quartets by five different composers, all performed by the Cassatt String Quartet. The next quartet, Bleach Thread, Sister Thread, I find fascinating because there, in the booklet notes for the CRI emergency music recording that was released of it, 
you reprint the poem by your sister. That was sort of a starting point for this piece. Mm -hmm. I feel bad for all the people nowadays who, who only listen to music on streaming services. They don't get to read the poem. You know, how do you convey those meanings? That really plays off of this idea of the difference between text and music. Right. And it was really a, an interesting piece because it was both about these the abrasiveness of close relationships that can happen. But also, I was just coming off of having open heart surgery and a nine-year illness and feeling this return of health. And I just listened to that piece recently. It's really fun to go back and say, oh, I haven't listened to that for 10 years. <laughs> what was that about? I am really struck by the ending. There is this long sort of rhythmic passion passage that keeps on going and is kind of unrelenting at the end. And I'm like going, whoa, how did I write that? Because it's long. And as a composer, that's a lot of notes. <laughs> you get kind of tired. It's interesting that you mentioned that, that sort of relentlessness, because another piece that you wrote that same year, Fire on the Mountain, the trio for piano and mallet percussion. Mm -hmm. I get a sense hearing it to my ears at least that it sounds like a kind of post-minimalism that you mentioned terry riley in, in passing in this conversation and pauline who didn't call herself a minimalist but was certainly a fellow traveler to a lot of yes. that music yes. at that yes. time i'm wondering if that a sound world that you embraced obviously in your own way yeah. i was very interested in my own personal energy where did it go? If I'm exhausted, what happens? If I'm running, I'm running. That sense of you're running and going to your physical limits and just being exhausted, what happens at that point when you're exhausted? So I think what I was getting into is that kind of restless energy that I have that has a minimalist sense to it. But where it's not minimalist is that the change is not at all prescribed. There's not, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to add a note, and then I'm going to add two notes, and then I'm going to add three notes, and then I'm going to, it's more intuitive. But I think what I was learning at that point and resonating with what was going on at that point orally for me that I was hearing was a kind of interior restlessness, sort of like a stream that's always moving, but it's hitting into different things and it's going different places. And and maybe it's going down the rapids or, but then suddenly it breaks, breaks open. And I think what's characteristic of a lot of my music is that breaking open sort of at the end. And for me, spiritually, you're just at the end of all your physical limits. And then you say, okay, it's sort of your heart goes up to God. You know, it's just like, okay, I'm ready. And I think where I was in my life coming to terms with a lot of the very difficult things that I had to go through, you could call it forgiveness or radical acceptance, or you could have a lot of names for it, but it was sort of, for me, kind of supplication, like, okay, this is what I got. And I want to move, not move on, but I embrace, embrace it in whatever way that is sonically. Maybe I'll also hear hints of minimalism and fire on the mountain. Here performed by Anthony Orlando on marimba, Don Liuzzi on vibraphone, and Charles Abramovich on piano from the CRI Emergency Music CD of Tina Davidson's music.
certainly, you know, to take it back to string quartets, your next quartet after that, Delight of Angels, is definitely mm-hmm. talk about, you know, spirituality and ecstasy. And that's definitely conveys that. Yes. And, you know, without giving myself airs, I was just, I was fascinated by that ecstatic experience where you're dancing, you're dancing, you're dancing, and then you're the dance. You are no longer you. You're just the dance. And there's no elevation about that. The other thing about that quartet that I'd be remiss not to talk about with it, because I think one of the reasons why you're so idiomatic with string writing is the very close working relationship and friendship you've had all these years with the members of the Cassat Quartet. They commissioned that piece, they premiered it, they recorded it, they also recorded Cassandra Sings. You know, they've been huge champions of your music. And they also did a piece that, which is probably to this day, my single favorite piece of yours, the Triple Quartet, Paper, Mm -hmm. Glass, String, and Wood, which they did it as three multi-track quartets. But the original idea for this piece was that it was to be professional players and amateur players playing together. I'm curious about how performances panned out along those lines, because I know it through that recording where, I mean, they're obviously professionals and they're perfect. How does that play out in live performances with ensembles? You know, I was I was in a wonderful residency with Fleischer Art Memorial. I mean, what a fantastic job I had at three years to be in an art institution. Their theme was culture builds community going out into the community, working with the community so they would feel comfortable to come in. And I was doing a lot of teaching in public schools and in Philadelphia, schools were really some of the really rough neighborhoods. I mean, really rough neighborhoods. Boxes of broken instruments were shoved in a closet. So they had nothing. And these were in the 90s. I was really tasked with, if I want to share my love of composing with anybody how do I do it and one of the ways was I'll just write for kids to play with professionals I mean how cool would that be to play with you know the Kronos string quartet it would just change people's lives to actually perform with professionals and not to see them performing on the stage but to perform with them so I wrote this triple string quartet and it's written actually sort of telescoping so you can play it for one quartet for two quartets and for three quartets. And actually I created a version for one quartet and string orchestra as well, for student string orchestra. And the second quartet plays better than the last quartet. They were sort of aimed that way. When we did the premiere, we did it with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra and they worked with local kids. It was such a joy. Those kids were like, oh, did you see that quartet? They were smiling at each other and they were they were working together. I mean, they really got music. They really got infected. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to be infectious <laughs> and break down these barriers that it's a string quartet up on the stage, but it's musicians loving to perform together and they perform with kids, and they share that generosity and that love of playing with others. And so that was the goal of that piece. Then I went on to write another piece that hasn't been recorded. It's for tiny little baby Suzuki string players, and they have a melody which they learn sort of with their Suzuki teachers, and they are actually on the stage with their Suzuki teachers. So they're getting their cues from them instead of from the conductor because they're like little. 
And then it's a professional string orchestra and they get the chance to play their own piece with the orchestra. That to me is really important to create works that are good music, you just love them, and that kids can play, you know, there is this telescoping idea with it. Here's a bit of Tina Davidson's paper glass string and wood for three string quartets, which on this Albany Records release are all performed by the Cassatt String Quartet. decades later, people look back and people who know sort of the full story of what happened in American music know that this Meet the Composer Orchestra Residencies program in the 1980s was this watershed event that finally positioned composers and orchestras and got program directors and artistic directors and sometimes marketing directors, the hardest people to convince, right? Mindful of doing new music and these composers were sort of embedded there as agents for all of us, but the story that they still don't know, that people don't talk about, is the follow-up program to this, which you were part of, the new residencies program that paired composers with communities. So much music came out of that, and virtually none of it has been recorded, which yeah. I think is a tragedy. I would love to hear the pieces that you wrote as part of that program. I, there should be recordings of this. People need to know the story of what that residency was about, because I think, whereas the first program was about getting orchestras engaged and excited about new music, this follow-up program was really about bringing it to audiences in a way that no other program before had done. Absolutely. I was in the second year of the program and my fellow composers, I think there were just three of us, was John Deke and John Luther Adams. Each of us had three-year commitments and they were really composers in the community. And I think that my residency was the first residency where we didn't pick a radio or a university. I picked the YWCA to be my arm in the community. So it was an opera company, Delaware Opera Company, Newark Symphony, and the YWCA. It was a time where composers and artists were asked to go into communities and into schools to teach because schools were sort of pulling away from arts education. And there was a lot of fuss about that. You know, composers felt that, yeah, they should be just writing music and why should they go into communities? And having come from an institution where composers were supposed to be this sort of elite outsider that wrote about community, I can understand their position. I didn't agree with it necessarily. I was really fascinated by the whole thing. So that's where I started my young composer in the schools 
it was really hard. I came across building instruments with him because there was nothing in the classroom. There were no instruments. So I also worked with women in a residential program who were homeless to try to have them understand themselves through music. That was sort of what we were trying to get at. And I was writing my own opera in a funny way about my life story while they were writing their operas. That was the genesis of that program. And it was extremely informative to me as a composer. I mean, it was hard because I was a single parent at that point and I was traveling down to Delaware and you know, sort of balancing a lot of balls in the air. I yeah. would love to hear some of the music yeah. that came out of that. And to bring it back to this book, because you talk very eloquently about getting these young kids to compose with their own instruments and coming up with their own notation systems. It's fascinating. I'd love to hear some of their work as well. I don't know how much of that got preserved. You know? I have some, a few recordings. It was wonderful to see them on their own journey. And I have to say that at the end of the day, then you have to get down to the hard tax where you get back into those uh, planning meetings and they say, okay, so now you've worked in all these schools and you've worked with homeless people. What is the effect? What are the tangible outcomes? And I have to be really honest and say, that is not my job. My job is to do the work and to plant the seeds and hope there will be some outcomes, but I can't be outcome driven. Well, it's ultimately about the art. It's ultimately about getting these people excited, getting everybody excited about the creative impulse that is innate to all of us. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we have this wall and say, oh, there are some people who are creators, and then the rest of us just kind of have to listen to those creators. You know, why? Why should we be listening to them? I mean, the reason we should be listening to them is to inspire ourselves to create our own things and to go on yes. this journey. To take it back to your book, one of the things that I found so inspiring about it and so clever is the way it was written. We've been talking a lot about structure versus intuitive kind of letting things happen, but there was a very, very clear structure to this. You have these like two different time points that kept going back and forth, two different narratives. One were these beautiful aphoristic journal entries from the 80s and 90s. And then the others was a more narrative, you tracing your childhood and tracing the story. And they go back and forth in ways that at times to a reader were frustrating because it's like, what happens next? Now I'm going back <laughs> to this other narrative. But it was exciting. And I think one of the things that made it exciting was in a way we're kind of with you on that journey, discovering the story of your biological origins. I think if you would have done the book in a straight narrative from beginning to end, it wouldn't have quite had the poignancy of getting to that climactic moment. It's funny because you were talking about my residency and one of the big pieces that I wrote was my opera, Billy and Zelda. And it's really the same form. There are two stories. Billy is all sung through with uh, five or six performers. And Zelda is a narrative, a story with cello improvisation. And you go back and forth and slowly these stories that don't seem to have a lot to do with each other, except they're both about children who have died and are coming forward. They start to be woven together. 
And I think the book really talks about how I experienced, how I had to weave my life together. And there were lots of conflicting stories. And I know that when I sent this out to other publishers, they said, oh, you, you have to, it's just a wonderful story. You have to all write it in a narrative. And I'm like, no, that's not the way I hear it. I've experienced it in this sort of compartmentalization. And that's how I want to write about it with my growing understanding of how I can integrate my personal stuff with my composing life. It was interesting for me reading it. I'm also adopted, but I never traced my origins and I never want to, in part because when I was a little kid, I obviously felt like an outcast because of it. A lot of the same stuff that you talk about. But as an adult, I find it liberating not knowing what my origins are, because it means that potentially any person and any music is part of me, is related to me somehow. I can embrace it all without mm -hmm. having to worry, well, this isn't mine, because either all of it's mine or none of it's mine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, none of it's mine is not a good option. But it was fascinating, and I'm curious. I mean, that's really informed my aesthetics, how learning that ironically that you were adopted but you weren't adopted i shouldn't be giving this away for people who haven't read the book this is <laughs> don't listen to this part turn this tape off and read the book spoiler yeah, turn alert. The, yeah turn yeah spoiler alert <laughs> um, <laughs> turn this off if you haven't read the book because you should read the book before you listen to this how has that informed you as a creator what does that mean that sort of refinding yourself that way since your music is a journey about finding yourself, how does that very key part of your identity shape your music, you think? Oh, it definitely has informed my music. The journals start where I already know this information, but I am dealing with the aftermath, which is rage. I am so angry and anger is creeping into my music. And at the beginning of the book, I say, you know, my daughter was my great opportunity. I realized I was in trouble and I could either hand it to her and let it, her deal with my legacy, or I could deal with it. And she was a great inspiration to me to be brought up. Definitely when you're adopted, there is this sense of not belonging. And I think because Certainly when I grew up, it was like, oh, aren't you lucky? Somebody, you know, adopted you. You were so lucky. And then you're thinking, yeah, that's only half the story. I am fortunate. But there is this hole about that's in one's life about not being wanted. And I was also really scared that my real parents would be out there and come and claim me. They take me away from what I had. And so to find out when I was 21 that I was living next to, you know, I always felt like I wanted to belong to another body. I had been living next to that person that I belonged to. And I realized getting back to words, how words can completely change your reality. Just one word. And it reminds me of the book, The Last of the Just by Schwarzbart. And I believe that the story is that he at the last moment during World War II realizes that he is Jewish 
He had not been told he was Jewish until the last moment. And this completely changes his reality. And he has to decide if he's going to go off to the concentration camps. It's just that word. You're really the same person, but man, your reality is completely flipped. What do you do with that? How do you claim who you are when you suddenly don't know? And curiously, with music, there's where the secrets come in, right? You can never know all of what's there or each listener puts something else there that's mm -hmm. their own as a listener that right. you might not have intended but it's there and creates the journey that way which as you said at the onset of this conversation is is what you hope happens yeah with listeners which i i found very generous and very beautiful one thing that i have to say so i get to the end of this book and the book pretty much spoiler alert again pretty much ends in the 20th century. I was a little disappointed by the end of the book because I, I wanted more. I want to know what's happened in the last 20 years because I got so involved in your story and so involved in these characters and these narratives. I wonder, is there a volume two in the works for this? What's the rest of the story? There's obviously more to it. I, well, I'm thinking about that. There isn't a volume two yet. But what I am really interested in now is what happens to a creative artist when you go through your 60s and you go towards the end of your life? What is creativity? I think we have a lot of fantasies. Wrote music until the last dying breath, you know? <laughs> he's dictating the, you know, the requiem as he's gasping for air. But what happens to your creativity as you get older? I'm kind of, I'm really interested in that. So I'm thinking about another book. Yeah. Great. Well, you've got, you've got at least one committed reader here. Okay, great. Um, already. And I want to hear the more recent pieces. I treasure those two CDs of your music. That's mm -hmm. all this fabulous music from the 80s and 90s. We didn't talk about every piece. I wanted to, but, you know, this is how these things always go. These conversations kind of take on their own shape you can't really structure them it's just like just like music they have to happen organically but i want to hear more recent things is there yes, is there going to be yes i have a cd coming out at the end of the year with a jasper quartet i do write a lot for strings i do love strings yeah i think my heart is a cello i think sometimes with natalie zoo and the jasper quartet and a lot of piano string music is coming out so I'm really looking forward to that. And I've just gotten some releases from choral performances to release them. I'm really excited about that. Wow, that's really exciting because there you have music and words joined together. So, mm -hmm. you know, this solves the problem in part. Music creates other problems, mm -hmm. but in terms of comprehension, but wonderful. Well, it was such a joy. It was a joy reading this book. Thank you so much for your generosity in that book. And your generosity of spending an hour chatting today. This was a long overdue conversation. Really appreciate it. This concludes our episode of Sound Lives. But before we sign off, let's hear some of Tina Davidson's transparent victims for saxophone quartet. On this CRI recording, all the parts are performed by Marshall Taylor. Thanks for listening. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, 
the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.